Matt, thank you so much for being on. I appreciate having you here. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah. So uh, why don't we just start off by you telling me, um, talk to me about Paps Theater Group um, and the company that you're with and just the overall size of it. And I'm going to ask you about the history and your history getting into all of this. But sure, you guys have a pretty awesome uh, business out there in Milwaukee. So why don't we start with that? Yeah, well, we're an independent um, company. We operate six buildings and uh, do a lot of in-house promotion and also partnering with, um, you, you know, promoters and, and that sort of thing, as well as uh, producing our own events. So the venues that we run up here in Milwaukee are the Paps Theater, which is a 1,300-seat uh, flexible-seated theater, Riverside Theater, a 2,400-seat flexible theater, uh, Turner Hall Ballroom, a 987-capacity open-floor ballroom, Backroom at Colectivo, which is a 300-cap club. We just added a space called the Miller Hallock Theater, which is a great big 4,000-capacity theater. And then we also um, bought a private event space called the Fitzgerald, which is off of the you know concert grid of what we do, but that's also a component of our business is private events, too. So we're pretty well diversified. What's going on at the Fitzgerald? It's, uh, you know, it's a uh, 1800s era mansion on the east side of Milwaukee that was converted to uh, an event space. We do everything from, you know, parties to weddings and, you know, some dining events and that kind of stuff it has nothing to do with rock and roll. But it's uh, it's definitely something that over the years, you know, as a building operator, in addition to, um, you know, doing promoting and that kind of stuff, you have have to diversify what you do with your business and the private event side of it for sure is something that we're focused on as a company. Well, would a concert promoter be without some sort of mansion to throw interesting gatherings? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. Maybe it's haunted. <laughs> I don't know. But... <laughs> it better be haunted. There gotta, there's gotta so. be some like ghosts walking around, some ghost butlers. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah, awesome. I, yeah, I, I, you and I have talked about this, but I grew up in uh, Milwaukee and going to mm-hmm. concerts. So it's been, it's always been a you know pleasure working with you all. Um, how how did uh you know how how did why don't we start with how did Paps Theater get going and then I think you know the history of Paps Theater and then Paps Theater group forming uh, sure. I really think that's an interesting story so if you could just shed some light on that that'd be awesome absolutely well the the company starts you know well the Paps Theater was built in 1895 and that was uh, you know one of the great theaters of the city of Milwaukee it was. Um, built with local German artisans. The first 20 or so years of the theater, it was all German language theater. And over the years, um, that venue had been uh, through a lot of different changes. Um, In the 70s, apparently Black Sabbath and Santana had played there. And there's all these stories of having kind of crazy green vinyl seats. Um, Towards the 80s and the 90s, it had been really restored to be sort of a capital A art center, PAC type venue, um, which was, you know, hosting classical and jazz performances and that kind of thing. Um, but it was a city owned and operated venue. And so, you know, as city owned and operated venues tend to go, um, it was really hemorrhaging money and having a difficult time. Uh, in 2002, a guy named Michael Cudahy was a local philanthropist and was the founder of a company called Marquette Electronics, which is a medical 
uh, equipment company, uh, bought it from the city for a dollar under the premise that he would renovate it, bring it back to its grandeur and own and operate it for at least 15 years. Um, so that kind of enters the not-for-profit uh, that Michael started, Michael Cudahy. And um, somewhere in there, he hires me and a guy named Gary Witt to come in and run it for him. And how old were you um, at the time? How old was I? I was at the time, yeah. Yeah, I was 24. <laughs> so I was a young awesome. dude. Yeah, I was a young dude. So it's, it's a long time ago, but I was a pretty young dude. And, um, you know, over the years, me and Gary got pretty ambitious with what we wanted to do. We took on in 2005, the Riverside Theater as a part of that group um, to operate and manage the Riverside Theater. We took on uh, Turner Hall Ballroom and somewhere around 2014, 2015, the foundation, Michael, everybody said, hey guys, uh, this is great. I mean, even at that time we were promoting like amphitheaters and arenas and doing all kinds of crazy stuff, festivals, you know, and, and they said, look, um, this is a really outstanding endeavor you guys have gotten yourselves into, but the risk is not what the original foundation set out to do. Um, the original foundation was set up really uh, primarily interested in the preservation of the Paps Theater and not all of these other endeavors that we're engaging in. Very supportive of it, but not the primary mission of it. So we were asked at that time, hey, what can we do? Um, you know, to work something out here. And, uh, you know, ultimately at that point, me and Gary agreed to take the risk that was being assumed by this non-for-profit that had maybe gotten itself into, into a little bit more uh, activity than it anticipated. And we said, well, we'll take on that risk. And we started a management company um, now called PTG Live Events LLC or commonly known as the Paps Theater Group. So there's a split there um, over to me and Gary's management group. Since then, uh, we added the back room at Collectivo. We added the Miller Highlight Theater and the Fitzgerald, all as a part of that management group. And it's been an outgrowth. We still have a really outstanding relationship with the Paps Theater Foundation that was the split off there. Um, and it was all you know, an interesting, you know, kind of change uh, to move from. And I, I always kind of joke about being like, um, you know, there's sort of a weird like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory moment there where it's like, oh, you want to take over the Chocolate Factory? Here you go. And then it's like, this is great until somebody starts drowning in the Chocolate River and, you know, the, <laughs> the Loompas decide they want to unionize or something like that. And it becomes something where it's like okay uh you know we're uh you know it's it's not uh you know hanging out backstage all day and partying with rock stars i wish that it were but um it's still uh, been a really rewarding path and a very interesting way to get into the business to get in um as a business owner and operator so that was kind of our story interesting um when you said the instantly my mind went to when at the with the charlie and jack chocolate factory i watched the movie as an adult and was absolutely mm -hmm. horrified like one of the most uh hilarious but frightening parts is like the the kid like shrinks down into nothing and the oompa loompa like whispers in 
the deck, the guy's ear and it's like, Hey, like, you know, I can provide the sur- surgery, but I really can't guarantee that, you know, that it's going to go well. And it's like, Oh yeah, you're, you're not liable. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, great, yeah. This is a kid's movie. What? Yeah, uh, it yeah. is pretty. It's a little dark. Yeah, <laughs> that's an interesting analogy of uh, the Oompa Loompas running around the music venue, and uh, I think I think that's a yeah a true-ish analogy. And I mean, it's actually kind of shocking to hear you say that it's not just all about hanging out with rock stars. That's a big surprise <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. As you know, I'm, I'm definitely uh, you know on the nerd side of it. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I, one thing that's a, that's a really interesting story, and uh, it's funny when you said Cudahy, I, that I remember that, and I played Cudahy High School in football, and mm-hmm. knew about Michael Cudahy, I forgot that he weaved into this story. Um, it's interesting to hear how the Pops Theater Group went from, you know, kind of traditional performing arts, swung into, you know, Santana and uh, well, things I, that. Uh, I would say, well, those were things that happened in the '60s. I mean, in, in those early days of. Uh, the foundation, um, when it was just at Paps Theater, we were really focused heavily on artist development. And we had a few early artists that took a chance on a venue that really, you know, now would sound kind of crazy. So it's like you say, okay, we've got this performing arts center, and it's mostly jazz and classical. For somehow we got artists like Bright Eyes and Cake and, mm. you know, Rufus Wainwright and David Byrne. Uh, you know, there's a bunch that were in that kind of early group who took a chance on us that were really playing more mainstream venues. Um, you know, and, and in, in that case, it, it was just a build. And we were fortunate to be kind of right in the middle of a, um, you know, there was a real indie rock boom in this kind of early 2000s. So you had all these bands that, you know, typically wouldn't have played a market like Milwaukee. Milwaukee would have thought it of as not cosmopolitan enough for them. And that would have been like the Bell and Sebastians of the world or something like Seeger Rose. And we had, you know, those artists, um, A, loved the venues, loved the nature of playing uh, like an ornate, you know, interesting historic theater over a club um, that took a chance and, and helped us build. And at that same time, we were also getting really engaged with uh, working in a lot of stand-up comedy. And we had, you know, very, very early performances from people like, you know, Jim Gaffigan and Mike Birbiglia and, you know, sort of a pre-scandal Louis C.K. Um, you know, where all of that stuff grew and grew for us. Um, and, you know, we, we have been in a place where, um, you know, that, that was something that, that was a huge piece of our development it was this early artists that took chances on us and, and worked with us over the years. Um, you know, we actually started this thing at the Pabst when it was just one venue and we said, okay, we understand the need to develop artists in the market. And we had like, you know, for some of these, it was an absurdly large number of seats. The problem was being too big, too much capacity. And say, okay, well, we want to work, you know, in some of these artists that we see developing. And so we bought a curtaining system for the theater so we could actually reduce it to be a 600 capacity venue. And at that time, um, you know, some of the artists that ended up becoming like really seminal artists for us played 
what we were calling PBR 10 buck shows. We charge $10 for the tickets. And so some of the early ones were like Bonavere in 2008, Fleet Foxes, I think around that same time. Um, you, you know, things like M Ward and Spoon and all, all these kind of early indie rock, you know, things in the early 2000s, early mid 2000s. Interesting. What was, what was going on in the 1800s at, at Pabst Theater Group? <laughs> in the 1800s? Yeah, when it was, you yeah, said it was founded in 1895, right? Correct, yeah. Yeah, it was so a German what, playhouse, yeah. It was, it was I mean, play, It was plays, okay. Yeah, it was Sym plays. Symphony orchestras and, yeah. and... Correct, yeah, yeah. Again, it was, um, I, I mean, these were, you know, much different era, obviously, of entertainment, um, yeah. where you're talking about the communities really coming in. And at that time, you know, into the mid-1900s, you had dozens of performance theaters downtown. Um, yeah. So it was one of many. Oh, really? In the mid 1900s, yeah. one of many. You, you around the same like size. The 30s. Uh, Pabst would have been actually around the same size. I mean, you know, fascinating. Yeah. So you had. I mean, there's photos of Wisconsin Avenue in Milwaukee, just lined with, literally lined with half a dozen theaters, just up and down. Interesting. One of the spaces eventually became converted into other things or, you know, I mean, and, and it's funny because I, I, I don't know. I mean, you'll have to get a real historian out here to talk about what the, you know, nature of those historic theaters in the era are. But, I, you know, I we've walked into so many different spaces in the building or around the region where people say, well, we've got, um, you know, this old theater that used to be here has just been sitting vacant for many years. What can you do with it? And, you know, I'd love to be the savior of every historic theater in the state of Wisconsin. Yeah. But the fact is, is that um, these are very difficult to maintain spaces. They get dilapidated <laughs> really quickly and really easily if mm. they're not properly, uh, properly maintained. So we've seen some, I've definitely seen some, um, you know, I guess it fit into the kind of the haunted house category with some of the mm. venues around the city. But, you know, to their credit, you have something like, uh, you know, the Bradley Symphony Center just up the street from us that was previously uh, called the Grand Theater. It was all Art Deco Theater. And we walked into there, um, you know, just about 10 years ago. There was a question, hey, would you guys want to come in and look at this? And it had been a converted movie theater at the time. And I remember just looking around and going, wow, there's no way like this thing is, <laughs> this thing is done. But the fact is you have an entity like the symphony who did the work and came in and um, you know renovated and turned it into a beautiful space and brought it back to its its grandeur. Yeah, it's really that's really fascinating. And uh, you know, I think a lot about how many venues there are in specific cities. And I'm in Austin, Texas. And depending on what you count as a venue, there's either I don't know 30 or 40 venues or 150. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, obviously, there's only so many venues a city can sustain. But it's pretty fascinating to think about. Um, you know, dozens of theaters on a single street in Milwaukee a hundred years ago. And, you know, the, the, uh, the population numbers of Milwaukee, I'm sure have like gone through the roof. So if you just think about, you know, how much product there was to have a, to sustain in a dozen venues, and it must've just been like the really popular thing to do. And, um, and even, even with how much Milwaukee has grown, I, you know, I wonder, I wonder what, you know, the, it's just interesting to see the the demand for live events change historically. Like I, I had no idea there was that many venues in Milwaukee that long ago. And um, it's a little bit shocking to imagine that there was enough demand to keep them, you know, healthy and alive. And 
I, I hear what you're saying that a lot of them have turned to movie theaters or whatever. And thankfully there's a lot that are still around, but it must've just been the thing to do back then. Um, yeah. Yeah. I can't speak to the economics of it, but you're, you're definitely talking about a different era. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you know, I mean, you're leading into in the 20s of vaudeville era and, and all those sorts of things. And um, I you, would. Yeah, go ahead. But, oh, I just you, go on a, an a limb and, and imagine that there was probably uh, more, you know, public uh, financial <laughs> support yeah. than there is now for the arts, the capital A arts. What's the closest? Do, do you do symphony at PAP still and plays? Like, is there anything? What's the closest experience to? something well, the, that would have been happening back then that you know if, if would have been transport someone yeah, look we're still you yeah. know we still have the symphony as an occasional tenant um we still have awesome. things like the ballet as an occasional tenant at these theaters we definitely have not um you know there was uh you know no uh, you know line in the ground drawn and said nope if it's highbrow we're we're done with it um but there was a recognition that in order for these venues, the historic venues to survive, that it needed to be way more diverse. It needed to speak to, mm. um, you know, many different audiences, not just the white kind of donor class in Milwaukee. Got it. Got it. Yeah. I, I've been learning the cello lately just for fun and uh, <laughs> been really desiring to like show up to a traditional like symphony concert and uh, just a side note. So it's, it's cool to be having this conversation. <laughs> Would you say across the board, you know, there's obviously you in Milwaukee and, you know, PFM on the East coast and mm -hmm. um, Nederlander, like, would you say across the board, there's it, these, these famous old theaters are, and then, you know, day in the live over in Ohio, is it primarily, is it, does it have this balance of new, you know, concerts, comedy, uh, traditional things that you might see back in the early 1900s or um would you say that's the average use case or the mean use case um and is there is there any other is there any facilities that like just can just survive off doing you know orchestras and that type of thing or are they all mostly like sprinkling in rock and comedy and other types of music right well i, I think if you're talking about um some of these other you, you know you you do have some of these other venue groups around the country one of the ones that we look to is a real model um, in the past had been something like a Seattle theater group where they're, you know, that's a great example of a group that's doing kind of everything, you know, all the way out to really, um, you, you know, that same kind of like, you know, edgy, even EDM, you know, metal, hip hop, um, you know, all the way over to similarly hosting the symphony and that kind of thing. I mean, one of the things that um for a, a lot of groups unlike ours but you you mentioned like Niederlander um a lot of those groups are are definitely saying okay there needs to be some kind of a tentpole in in many cases in those buildings that tentpole is Broadway um the issue with Broadway for sure and and what I think if you talk to people that are that booking shows into those venues is a it takes up a lot of dates and so it reduces your level of flexibility, what you can do with the venue. So even if there's a desire to say, okay, we really want to amp up, you know, this or that, or we see opportunities, um, you know, the dates in your calendar, really, you have to think of it as like um, inventory on a store shelf. You only have so much. And once it's gone, it's gone. Uh, so I think that 
you know, when you talk about that kind of balance between the capital A arts things, and it's the same with, you know, anytime you have a resident group, if you have a resident symphony, if you have a resident ballet or something like that, they're taking dates off the calendar for rehearsals and, and that sort of thing. So there is going to be with the arts groups and natural push and pull um, that is going to make it challenging. And so we, you know, our group, uh, you know, is not necessarily, that's not the bent that we take. We're uh, really actively booking, actively booking one-off shows. And I would say it's probably, um, you know, from a calendar perspective, more challenging. Uh, it, it's a lot more, you know, filling in the blanks. It's a lot more like work, but um, the flip of it is, is I think you come up with an extremely diverse slate of what you do, which is, is what I would point to. And I think something that has really benefited us. Awesome. Yeah, another another uh, kind of theater experience that I just flashed back to is, um, and I don't know how historically accurate this is, but you know, like uh, magicians and mm -hmm. yeah. think about that Chris Nolan movie, that phenomenal. You know, you know that Chris. Nolan oh, movie the where, Prestige. I haven't seen yeah. it. No, I know. Oh a my lot god, of it, yeah. it's a it's a must see. I mean, they're all they're you see like these magicians kind of like take a similar path into stardom that a rock artist might be and then they arrive at these mm -hmm. like historical theaters where everyone where it looks kind of like a you know traditional like broadway crowd shows up to see the the world's most famous magicians and what do you have any magicians coming through anymore uh, uh yeah we, we're doing that all the time we you know we have a show right now on sale called um penn and tellers the foolers which is penn, penn and teller have this tv show called tool us that um you know where they try to guess how tricks are done and the winners now are going out on a tour, but the art venues have hosted pretty much everybody. I mean, for years prior to him coming off the road, David Copperfield was a regular at the Riverside. We've had, you know, Chris Angel will come every few years, Penn and Tally themselves will come every few years. We have shows like Masters of Illusion and all that kind of stuff. And it's funny with magic because I never really imagined that there was you know, I always thought, well, magic is sort of this weird little outlier thing, uh, but there are magic fans. They're legitimate. If you look at the data and it's, it's something I always find really interesting. We have, you know, we sometimes will run these correlation reports where we can see, you know, where the different segments are matching up. And, you know, you think, well, is the Chris Angel crowd, you know, Chris Angel is this kind of gothy, edgy, whatever, you know, um, you know, does that crowd line up with Penn and Teller, you know, which is comedy and kind of jokey and fun? The, the answer is absolutely 100%. There's a segment of people um, that are dedicated fans of magic. <laughs> so it's kind of always, it's always interesting. But of course, your venues are very well positioned for that. And there's something about David Copperfield had still had some sort of alteration to the Riverside uh, when we came in uh, that was uh, done for a trick. Um, I remember uh, Chris Angel in one of the riders. We there was a conversation about taking uh, live alligators across state lines. Mm. <laughs> we had to get out in front of. So it's a very interesting genre, that's for sure. <laughs> wow, that's uh, you know that's 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 super interesting. Well, <laughs> so so fun and and cool to uh, to think about that. Um, so how. You you started working for the for for Paps at twenty four. Was that basically your intro into the live 
event space, live music industry, live events, uh, or did you, um, what were you doing before that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, leading into that, I I was kind of the kid who had every job in the business um, prior to that, uh, you know, in a very short amount of time. My first um, job in the music industry, and this would be stating it very loosely, was actually as security at Alpine Valley, which is a big amphitheater, big legendary amphitheater out here, Matt, I'm sure you know it, but it was, you know, the place where you had, you know, all these huge, like grateful, you know, stands of Grateful Dead dates. And this, uh, you know, I worked out there when you would Stevie have- Stevie Ray things... Vaughan's last concert. Correct. Yeah. The helicopter, yeah, the helicopter crash. crash. Yeah. My uncle was there. Oh, wow. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I, I worked there um, when they were doing things like, you know, multiple nights of Pearl Jam or, you know, the early days of that fish um, amphithe- amphitheater tours uh, yeah, or the festival boom where it's like Lollapalooza and Horde and Ozfest and all that sort of thing. But I was hired um, as a 17 year old uh, to do security. And I remember walking in thinking like, oh, wow, this is like the greatest job in the world. And they hired me right on the spot, sight unseen. And I thought I must interview really well. And I uh, called one of my friends at school the next day and I said, I got this job at Alpine Valley. I'm going to be security. I, they must really, I must really have shown something off. And he, he called me the next day and he goes, wow, that sounds great. You know, I would like to go apply for a job there. And I said, well, yeah, good luck. You know, it's, it's pretty whatever. And he calls me next. I called him up. They heard me right over the phone because they're just desperate for anybody at that time. It's just like, you get to the middle of the summer, they're paying, you know, referral fees, just put them in a shirt, anything. Cause the job was really tough. Um, it was you a got job. A very, yeah. You got a very important uh, music industry experience there of getting your ego crushed early on. <laughs> yeah, Right. Exactly. Well, that was the days where it was like, you do security for the day, be like 12, 18 hour a day. And then at the end of the night, um, you get handed a, a a garbage bag and one rubber glove. They couldn't give you two rubber gloves because they're trying to save on supplies. And you would choose a line on the hill and pick up beer cups and bongs and trash and all that shit and do that until, um, you know, until the hill was clean, the amphitheater was clean. So your combination security and cleaning crew. Uh, so I, I did that. Um, and it, it was one of those things where it's like, man, that was a very, uh, you know, you know, bottom rung type of job. When I got into college, though, I think my experience starts to line up with what you see with a lot of concert promoters where I I got involved with college programming. So I was booking shows as a student um, and I had, you know, the benefit of a university that had some okay budget and I got a lot more freedom than I would have expected as a 19 or 20 year old. Um, and so we would book things like, you know, regional jam bands like the Big Woo. There was a band called Sweet Potato Project and that kind of thing around here, as well as some of these Milwaukee artists like the Promise Ring who were coming up at the time. But also the ability to book larger scale events um, that included that kind of early or late 90s, early 2000s. So things like Everclear and Sugar Ray and uh, Michelle Branch. And I also booked a very early um, event with Dave Chappelle uh, at, in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, which was kind of a crazy situation because you've got a very white, uh, you know, straight-laced community. And Dave Chappelle coming in just as the Chappelle show was getting started 
um, really a very seminal, important moment. So I get out of college and I was working for a company for just a minute um, that was a college middle agent. And part of my job would be to fly around the country to little tertiary markets and cover um, you know, whether it was like ludicrous or dashboard confessional or whatever is touring colleges at that time. Um, and sort of right in that zone, I had sent a blind resume to the Paps Theater, um, to the old foundation. And, um, you know, they looked at it and said, hey, you know, <laughs> get in, kid. And that was it. So that, that's kind of, um, that's how I got in the van. But, you know, in between that, I you know, learned to mix audio, learned to do lighting, um, you know, had worked as a stagehand, all kinds of things, just anything you could to get into the business. Do you think, uh, do you think that what the path that you followed is pretty traditional and is the path that people could follow today that want to get into it? Or is there a different way that you would suggest if someone's listening to this and they're like, they want to be running a PAP theater group at some point in their lives? Well, I think you have to go do all those things. I think you have to pay your dues. I think you have to see the opportunities where they exist, even if it's working, you know, like at your college volunteering, you know, it is essentially volunteering for experience. Um, you know, I think you have to do those things. I think the one part of my story that is unique, and if there's an element of luck that's associated with it, we'd all like to say, okay, we really, you know, worked our butts off and that's how we got to where we were. But I think for me, it was, that I was able to do it in the state that I grew up in. Um, I think most people's story involves, I moved somewhere for a job and I, I don't um, underestimate, you know, the level of, uh, I guess, luck that the right job was in this city um, that I was hoping to live in in the first place. So, uh, you know, the fact that I didn't go far and wide is, is probably the most unique piece of that. Interesting. Um, just changing gears a little bit, you have or do currently book shows at the, uh, at the Fiserv or? Yeah, yeah we do. We periodically will do shows um, at the Fiserv Forum. We have a great relationship with those guys and um, started booking, you know, amphitheater and arena shows you know, probably going back about 10 years. And it's just artists that we've developed relationships with over the years and have had that trust to say, okay, um, Pabst Theater Group locally is the right option to take them all the way up to those high levels. And we've been, uh, you know, uh, it's very gratifying to be able to grow artists to that level um, and have that kind of trust from agents and managers and I think ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we're delivering a, a great product when we work with the arena. I, you know, it helps to have great partners like the arena. Um, but it is, I, we're probably, you know, going to be, you know, in the major, major minority of, uh, you know, independent, you know, building operators, promoters, et cetera, regional independent promoters that would have that uh, privilege to say, okay, we're still able to promote arena levels at, or arena shows at that level. What was that, if you don't mind talking about, what was that jump like of first getting into booking an arena and, and did it take some, some major losses and some, some scars to kind of uh, scab over and um, you know, what can you remember your first arena show and, and, and what was the process of getting comfortable at the point where like, yeah, you're, you're very, you, you can, 
you know, you can understand, you can be comfortable in the arena space and confident in the arena space. Yeah, I mean, look, the the real benefit that we have here is we're not necessarily full-time arena buyers where I'm not having to go, okay, I've got a massive tour that's kind of a roll of the dice. Uh, in almost every case where we've booked an arena show or an amphitheater show, large outdoor sheds, it's been an artist that we've had a tremendously long relationship with or agents and managers that we've had a tremendously long relationship. So the outcome is much more predictable, weirdly. I mean, definitely there are going to be promoters that will take a bath on an arena show. And we have, you know, there've been a handful of misfires, but, you know, the first, I'd say, show at that scale that we booked was um, Mumford and Sons over here at the, it was the old Marcus Amphitheater show for about 24,000 people. And in that case, um, you know, we were one of the first independent promoters in the country to do the show in a theater on the prior play. And it was something where we had a real, um, you know, front seat view to that particular artist just absolutely exploding and for good reason, you know, and on our side, I think there was a lot of belief and there had been a level of support for both the agent, um, you know, in his endeavors of what he was doing. Um, and, and ultimately, in that case, you have a tremendously, um, you know, a pretty easy to call outcome. It's more like, don't screw this up now on the production side. Don't screw this up on the catering side. Make sure that you're able to provide that same high level of attention to detail and extra service to the artist, um, you know, on all levels that sets you apart as an independent promoter versus um, maybe a larger company. Oops, I was on mute. That's yeah, fine. thank you for that. Uh, the whole arena space is really quite interesting. And, you know, you said that you're one of the only independent promoters out there, at least in the region that could, you know, that are, that's booking the arena level. And I, I tend to agree with that in my bird's eye view of the industry. And, you know, if you think, look at the small club space, there's a lot of venues that exclusively book their own stuff. There's a lot of promote, or they have uh, 10, 20, 30 regional and local promoters to choose from. Um, and then as you move up the scale, it seems like it's a direct correlation with less and less independent promoters can book bigger, are, are booking bigger spaces. I shouldn't say can, anyone can. Um, and less venues are doing their own booking. And then you, when you arrive at the arena, like I think it's it's a perfect continuum of, um, you know, there's a lot of arenas that do not, they'll only book with Live Nation or AG or um, or maybe one or two regional promoters. And then, yeah, there's not a ton of, you know, promoters floating out there that are uh, arena buyers. Do you generally agree with that? And why do you think, I mean, it's, I feel like it goes without saying just Live Nation and AG's access to data and information and the economies of scale and the, and the momentum of, of just booking those level of acts. But do you agree with that statement? And, and what, why do you think that um, Live Nation is able to be a promoter that can hang out at that level so easily, and there's not as many thriving independent promoters that are booking the arena level. Well, I mean, it, you know, look, you need a lot of, in order, you know, you need a lot of resources um, to say, okay, we're going to do a national arena tour. Um, we're going to take an artist from the East Coast to the West Coast, and we're going to have these, you know, relatively 
you know, high risk endeavors when you're talking about 20,000 plus seat houses every single night. And, you know, as I'm sure, you know, from what you can observe, it's like the ability to buy a large tour like that is going to only, that's going to be rare air. Um, and, and for most artists, I think right now there's a high level of, um, you know, there's, you don't have a lot of artists that are saying, okay, we're going to look at every market and, you know, look at a, who the right local partner should be and be what, um, you know, how do we maintain that kind of history with the partners that have at some level gotten us to where we are in each individual market it takes a really unique artist to even look at it that way. Um, you know, in many cases, it's going to be, it's a lot easier to say we have a single buyer, we have a single vision for the tour. And uh, so that is going to ice out the independent promoters. Um, from an artist's perspective, uh, look, if you are really happy with your tour, if you're really happy with the way things are going and the way that you're being treated and, and that sort of thing, um, that's going to be a huge, you know, benefit to the artist the downside of it obviously is if it's not going well or if uh you know there's increasingly the ability to be treated more like a number um than when you're working with a local independent promoter uh but i i wouldn't make any you know broad statements necessarily that um there's an independent promoter in every market who can do it. Back in the day, there certainly was, you know, and if you mm. follow the history of, um, you, you know, looking at, you know, regional promoters, you know, the Bill Grahams of the world and, you know, all these others who eventually got kind of vacuumed up and consolidated and which right. is we're in a period of consolidation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're booking your tour now with, there's fewer and fewer options um, as an artist to say, well, who do we want to book the tour with or who knows this region really well? You know, who do we like from a standpoint of production? Who do we like from the standpoint of catering and that kind of stuff? And so it's going to be a more uh, homogenistic result as far as who the players are. So to zoom, this is a great point. So the, to zoom out, you see a lot of, if, if I'm summarizing it correctly, you see a lot of national tours um, with one presenting promoter and mm -hmm. from the artist perspective that simplifies the decision it's like hey like you know I, cool live nation is doing everything ag is doing everything what is what ha what happens when what was the what was the last show you did with um at, at the vice or, or a show uh, brandy carlisle was the most recent over the first year for him. so why did carlisle like what what happened there they did not have a national promoter they just their booking agent was just going region to region and intentionally not working with one promoter and like why why did that you know why why do you think they did that instead of and instead no, of no i i, I yeah. think that there i mean brandy carlisle is an incredibly sought after artist and i think that especially within the last few years there's increasingly um an identification that this is somebody who is uh stepping up into the arena space stepping up into the you know outdoor shed space um, but she's also, from our perspective, somebody who, um, you know, you know, started doing support <laughs> at Turner Hall with us. And that's somebody that organically, you know, 
within our venues grew at least in this market um you know and she stayed loyal um to us and said okay now i we're going to do this in a way that we're going to look at each market differently look at each situation differently and certainly uh there's no question that other large promoters were at the table you know and when you do introduce some of those conversations um you know the question becomes okay we get into a negotiation state where um you know if the goal is just to own every arena date in the country then it does start to become about buying market share and it stops becoming about what's the right thing for this individual show and, and that can have the effect of um you know driving ticket prices up and and that sort of thing um it can have the effect of uh independent promoter like us it's at a certain point going okay we're tapped out it's not that important to us that we promote an arena show uh, you know with an artist that we've grown if the net result is that we lose you know the large amount of money on it um in the case of something like a brandy carlisle she has um you know no lack of interest in folks that want to promote her shows but i at least you know i think from our perspective um there's a real commitment to doing the right thing both for the fans and to identify that kind of a level of growth now does that mean that in the future we get every single one of those looks i have no idea um but you know those are cases where we can say okay this is an artist who very legitimately um you know had you know important stages of their career that were seen through um you know at, at some level within our venues and in i you know i fall short of saying that we were necessarily rewarded for that but we were definitely recognized for uh being a component in that and um that's a you know it's something we're grateful for very uh you know very very interesting i guess this is a good segue into just consolidation in general and and you know the the tour the things that happen on the national level and you could certainly understand why why consolidation has happened uh you know someone with an ambitious idea went out and and saw a business opportunity in consolidation and then i think there's a really huge industry-wide question that is always asked which is you know what is good um if you could if you could arrive at like a definition of like a god's eye definition of what is good for a for-profit industry for the artists for the fans um, and you know, there's and, and it, it, clearly there's some benefit in artists having like a national partner in some in situations, and right. there's been a lot of winners outside of Live Nation in that. Um, at the, and there's some benefits in having like really powerful and strong regional and local promoters. Um, if I could dare ask you a huge question, sure. And in, instead of just you know, what, what do you what if you could construct it from the ground up? Do you think? your version of a, of a truly, you know, altruistic live music industry has a big national partner and it's maybe just, is it more, or, or is it just fully regional or is there a distribution of power that you would think would just kind of net benefit everyone? Um, or, 
you know, yeah, like what's what's your what's your view of of a truly altruistic industry and its and its division of power against uh, against you know local, Man, regional, and national? That's a good a question. question. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I'd have to look for analogs within other businesses to say what is what is it, you know show me an example of what industry has done it well yeah i i would be really hard pressed to come up with one that said okay yeah you know we've got the kinder gentler version of this and they also happen to be the giant you know 800 pound gorilla um i i would say that i understand from the consumer standpoint, and I understand from the artist standpoint, um, why these can be challenging questions. I mean, one of the examples that I use in other industries is uh, something like Disney, right? Where, look, I'm a dad, I've got two girls, you know, they're three years old and seven years old. So they're right in that kind of perfect Disney, <laughs> you know, age. And um, you know, I always use now there's there's rules against a um, a film studio opening theaters, just as there are rules against it, like large breweries, opening bars, all that kind of stuff. It, it, you know, it's too much control of a singular industry. Um, but I would tell you that as a consumer, um, if somebody said, OK, they're opening a Disney's themed theater chain in you know all around the country there's going to be four locations popping up in milwaukee as a consumer i i'm the first one in line with my kids there because look i my kids both love disney and they love all the associated brands they love marvel and star wars i love marvel and star wars and all those sorts of things so i we'd be going okay well is there a cool restaurant whatever um but that's a natural reaction as a consumer at some level i think um as you know if you extend it out to people that are participating in the business that's a natural reaction too um but look the reason that there are uh rules against that is that disney for instance already controls huge aspects of the business huge levels of the business so when you think about your independent movie chain like here there would be like a marcus theaters right and marcus theaters uh, controls a huge number of movies, uh, movie theaters run really around the country, the Midwest. And in their case, um, Marcus Theaters is tremendously dependent on Disney releases because we're not just talking about The Little Mermaid and Mickey Mouse. We're talking about, as I said, the Marvel brand. We're talking about the Star Wars brand. We're talking about 20th Century Fox, all these different brands. And so if you were to say, okay, um, now we've got a chain of Disney theaters, it sounds awesome for the consumer. Um, what does this do for what looks like a behemoth of a movie chain? Well, it means that potentially their uh, summer releases will be compromised. They may or may not have the same level of access to the big summer releases, the Black Panther movie, the Spider-Man movie, or the big Disney animation release. Um, you know, same thing with any of the big holiday blockbusters. And, and for those businesses, um, that is the base of a lot of things that they do. Um, you, you know, so if you pull that back over to the live entertainment space, we go, okay, well, um, 
you, you know, and so you have have something that's really large, like a Marcus Theater, is that you could very easily see going away very quickly. And then from there we go, okay, well, what does it cost to go see a movie at the Disney branded theater? You know, if we follow uh, what Disney has done with their theme park prices, uh, you know, once there's an establishment that there's demand uh, and not a lot of competition, uh, those prices could go up pretty quickly. Um, and, and so something that on the front end looks really great for a consumer, um, you know, starts to get more and more difficult, but it's really not for the consumer or frankly, the filmmakers or anybody like that to make those decisions. Those are kind of governmental questions, you know? And, you know, if we extend it out to, again, the concert space, it's sort of the same kind of question. It's like, well, how much of this, um, you know, how much of this space, uh, you know, should and could be controlled by singular entities? Um, you know, I'm not necessarily equipped to answer that. It's certainly faster and easier, um, you know, for artists. And this is a great service for them. I think when you think about the public, um, the public is generally in favor of uh, more options and, uh, you know, kind of, uh, especially the kind of one-stop shop approach. Okay, I can go here and see everything. Um, and so ultimately at the end of the day, these are questions that are above, um, above the pay grade, I think, of the, a lot of the professionals within it or, or above kind of the, that kind of ponderance. And, and also really, you know, it's not fair to involve uh, consumers or creators necessarily in that conversation either because it's, it's pretty complex stuff. And you're asking for um, compromises in, in some levels. So you have a system that is kind of that, I guess what you refer to as a, holds the door open for altruism and some of those ideals. Um, you know, do I think that it's possible that uh, Disney eventually says, okay, we're going to navigate uh, the laws and the rules that we would open a chain of theaters? I, I mean, if that would be financially beneficial to them, I think that they would find ways to do it. And as a large company, that's sort of the, um, you know, look, the, you know, the apex predator is always going to be on the hunt for more food. Really, it's really fascinating, uh, incredible response. And many, many, many ideas are floating through my head, just thinking about what you said here. And, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, it's it's a matter of you know good and evil and and protecting the consumer and protecting pricing. And if if it's it's interesting that we have these monopolistic rules, like we have we have a cap, we live in a capitalist society, we have a free market, and and then just like we have free speech, you know. And then it's like, hey, what what where are the boundaries of free speech? You can't yell uh, fire in a crowded theater. What are the boundaries of you know free enterprise or whatever? You can't all of a sudden like own every part of the supply and demand chain because then you have you have power to then control pricing and the assumption there is anyone with that it's like the lord of the rings anyone with that level of power will just you know push push the limits of how high the pricing can go um you know so it's it's interesting it's interesting that we live in this society where it's like hey like we're going to limit 
you know, business up to a certain point to, you know, to protect the consumer in the end. And, and, uh, and the, it might picture, result in the consumer not having, uh, not always having right. the awesome thing that they think is going to be great. Even, you know, if, again, like I said, if, if there's a Disney themed movie theater, I'm there, I'm going, my right. kids are going, they're demanding, you know, and, and that, that, uh, business will be very successful at hoovering as much money out of my wallet as it possibly can. I'm in a fortunate position where, uh, hey, look, it's not as big a deal for me. Um, and these are great entertainment options as it is maybe for, you know, a family or a consumer that's saying like, hey, you know, we want to have the same entertainment options. We want to give these to our kids or our, our you know, teenagers or whatever. Um, you know, but you do start to limit, uh, you know, the number of people participating then at that rate. Well, it's really been interesting. This feels like a perennial conversation that keeps cropping up. And, you know, there's, there's Joe Biden made a text the other day about um, ticket fees. And, um, you know, there's news articles right now about reinvestigating the monopoly of, of Live Nation owning Ticketmaster, or if you could call it a monopoly, um, and once again, like I, I, I'm having trouble discerning if this is just the perennial crop that props up and doesn't really go anywhere or, or if, you know, this time around, it will lead to anything. Uh, do you have a perspective on if you think that there, do you believe that there's a challenge there with what's, what's currently being happened? What, what's current, what's well, currently I, involved I, with those two? Yeah. I, I mean, again, like, I, and so I want to be really clear in terms yes. of assigning any like good and evil or monopolistic or whatever i i don't i i actually you know i think i have a a fairly nuanced view of all of it because the fact is is that we work with companies like aeg and live nation and the large promoters every day and they are in many cases very beneficial to our business um, and very beneficial to what we do when we work in partnership and we're grateful for those partnerships um, and so just the very nature of being big doesn't necessarily mean that you're evil. You know, we talk about the apex predator has to eat. And that is true. You know, the Tyrannosaurus Rex needs its, you know, whatever. It's a brontosaurus to, to, to survive. But the fact is, is I think the ticketing conversation is a really interesting one. I mean, one of the big things that's on the table right now is um, this conversation about all-in ticketing. That when you have a price listed, you know, any fees or whatever, that we're not getting into this kind of long line list of fees. And, uh, you know, if that is legislated, and I, I, I think it would be incredibly difficult um, to imagine a world in which that will be, if that is legislated, it will be a massive disrupt um, to the industry, and it will cause a real kind of uh, soul searching, I, I think, kind of on everybody's side, because the fact is, is that how we got here um, in terms of a, you know, how, you know, you see ticketing, see ticket service fees, all these little incremental pieces of revenue that get fed into, um, you know, the larger pot how we got here kind of was an early, you know, fundamental kind of dishonesty about what it costs to do business in the first place and how 
where everybody needed, um, you know, what it took for each of the individuals in place uh, to make ends meet. You know, ultimately what this leads to is an arms race of, okay, well, if ticket service fees are going to be this over here, um, you know, look, the artist fee, the deal, all that kind of stuff, there's a basic understanding that there's revenue here that I, as the artist, you know, or I, as the venue, or I, as the ticketing company or whatever, aren't participating in. And the more we kind of stack that muck in of ticketing and VIP and, you know, ticket service fees and so on, every, you know, fee in the book, um, you know, it's kind of, to me, it's kind of muck stacking on top of muck stacking on top of muck. And, you know, the response, I think somebody would say, Berenger, hey, you're a hypocrite. You guys have, uh, you know, regular, you know, sort of typical ticketing company, um, you know, with fees and, and the whole thing. And you're participating in platinum premium ticketing and, and all those sorts of things as well. And the fact is, I, I would say, uh, yes, we're in a very complicated landscape. And those are the things that you need to do to compete in this current landscape. If you're seeing legislation, um, it will change the game and it will change it in very profound ways. How that works, what that looks like, I'm really not sure. I would guess, and you know, Matt, you being kind of in the tech sector, I would guess that it probably opens the door for a basic disruption in ticketing on the whole. Um, you know, ticketing is one of the few um, areas out there that hasn't gotten the Uber-like disrupt where we say, okay, there's something with technology here that's going to take the old, you know, stalwart players and throw all the cards up in the air. When you think about Uber, it's like, well, Uber was really just a much better way to hail a ride. Um, you know, I'll still catch taxi every now and again. But the fact is, if I can do it on demand, if I can do it without pulling a bunch of cash out of my pocket, if I can do it with a uh, wealth of information that includes where is this person? Where are we going? How much is this ride going to cost? Um, who am I talking to? What is their rating? All those sorts of things. Uh, you're making it incredibly convenient for the consumer in ways that make them want to use the service. I don't think anybody is looking at ticketing that way right now. And so I, I think those are all things that make the ticketing industry really ripe for either a major disrupt or um, some level of repositioning. Yeah, interesting. What's the, there's talks of this kind of all in ticketing. Mm -hmm. Is it speculative? Do you think there's a chance that it actually like what's what it, what if you were to bet if it's going to go through if something is actually going to happen what do you think I really don't know yeah. <laughs> you know I don't know I, it seems like especially in New York um, there's progress towards it um, you know it's it's a really complicated landscape though because we haven't even talked about that kind of secondary market you know <laughs> resellers which is another thing that makes ticketing. And just insanely complicated. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I do want to talk to you about ticketing and technology, but I guess before we move on, uh, I, I 
when I messaged you about this prompt, I wanted to kind of get your download on what's happening in Milwaukee. And mm -hmm. I know there's like a, a, a venue going up and, and like you mentioned, uh, you know, to, you wanted to have like an objective conversation around it. So if you could just fill me in on what's happening and, you know, that would be greatly appreciated. Yeah. Look, I mean, as is, uh, I think expected in any growing market, um, you know, you have plenty of players interested right now. You have, um, you know, uh, you know, the main uh, folks that are promoting indoor here um, on the kind of contemporary level are going to be uh, the folks over at the Rave, um, us, a few other players, um, and and now uh, Live Nation, FPC, uh, Frank Productions, who's a subsidiary of Live Nation, um, you know, coming over from Madison and, and building a venue uh, that will be uh, three, I think a 3,500 capacity and an 800 capacity standing room. Um, you know, in, in their case, I, I think it's natural that uh, those entities would be interested in Milwaukee. I think it's natural that we say, okay, this is clearly a growing market. It's clearly um, within the last 20 years become a much more attractive touring market than it had been. And so I think it, it's just natural that would follow. Um, you know, from our perspective, I, I don't know anybody that, you know, if you say, well, hey, I've got a, you know, I've got a candy store and somebody just opened the Jelly Belly outlet across the street, you know, are they going to be stoked about that? I, I don't think so. But I think if you run a really great candy store, um, it's probably, uh, you probably should expect that the Jelly Belly outlet is going to yeah. open up across the street because they're going to, you know, identify, hey, there's a market for, you know, candy here and let's go try to sell some candy. So I, I, that's what's going on here in Milwaukee. Interesting. You know, I'm curious to talk about what you're, so someone, someone is coming into the town that you're booking shows and I'm curious to hear about, you know, what your expansion plans are. And I guess drawing for full circle, um, I really appreciate your caveat about not assigning good and evil. And when I spoke to that, I think the broader kind of capitalistic principles are, is this effort to do that? And um, I was not assigning that either. To any, I'm any... not, I, I, no, 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 no. I, I just want to make sure I, 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 no, it's, I want to be it, really clear. I don't believe, you know, everybody's trying to make their way. I think that when you look at some of these big companies, a lot of the folks that work for these big companies are passionate music fans. I bet a lot of them got into it, um, you know, picking garbage off the hill at Alpine Valley, just like I did. So good and evil is, is a tricky term, you know. Good and evil and power. And, you know, it, it's it's interesting because, you know, I feel conflicted about shopping at Whole Foods and Amazon. And, you mm -hmm. know, there's there's a whole group of people that just won't, you know, very, very, feel very polarized about, like the company, Amazon, for instance. Um, sorry, my headphones just went off. And, you know, it's in kind of like your Disney experience, like I have a great experience now going to going to Whole Foods and and the prices have gone down. And as a consumer, like there is a, there is a lot of benefit. And I think just because you you do get good, um, it doesn't or sorry, just because you do get big, it doesn't mean that you you go away from doing good. And there's tons of huge businesses yeah. in the world that are doing good. Um, and then there is a lot of risk where it says, even if even if you're going to do so good, the government's not going to let you have uh, a monopolistic power because it's like, even if, because there could be a good monopoly, there could be someone that's so good that locks the market down that all of a sudden is like the supreme leader, but a good supreme leader, you know, 
but then the thought is like, all right, they are for now, but the power, it's like the story of, you know, too much power getting centralized and we're getting into some philosophic realms here, but yeah, we're, um, we're all hoping for benevolent corporate <laughs> overlords, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, so we got all of our caveats <laughs> out of the way, but you know, what's your plan? You know, I, I think when, when some people talk about live nation and they hate on it, they're like, well, don't you want to succeed and like keep growing and like get to this really beautiful place? And sometimes people say, Oh, you know what I kind of do. And like, why, why do I just look at live nation and judge it? Cause it's big. But then other people say, you know, actually like I, I have a friend who's a brewer in Milwaukee and he, or sorry, uh, Boulder, Colorado. And he doesn't want to get any bigger than that. He does just want to like have a healthy business in Colorado and, and he doesn't want to just continue to consume like an apex predator. And he wants to have a healthy income and just do that. And, you know, what's your plan with Pap Cedar Group? Or, yeah, look, just, I, yeah, I, yeah. I think our goal had always been and has continued to be uh, to build a brick house here. Um, you know, we've been really specific about not, um, you know, not expanding dramatically past the city of Milwaukee. Now, does that mean we don't, we would never expand past the city of Milwaukee? I, I don't necessarily know what's in the future, but the philosophy of the company, the strategy of the company has always been, we're going to build our brick house here. Um, you know, there's this thing about running deep versus running wide. I think in the market, we run really deep. We don't run all that wide past, um, you know, past the immediate market that we do. But I, I think that the fact that we're running deep here uh, to me has been kind of the key to success. We have, I think, really sustainable, well-thought-out businesses um, or a well-thought-out business that, uh, you know, has been kind of a brick-by-brick -brick mentality and it hasn't been about going out and grabbing as much market share as we possibly can. Um, you know, we expand when it makes sense. Um, but for many years, you know, look, our core venues were our core venues. We recently added uh, something like the Miller Highlight Theater, frankly, because it made a lot of sense. It made a lot of sense from a growth standpoint. But, uh, you know, that venue at 4,000 is, a, you know, unique piece versus all the other venues that we run. Uh, we think it's deserving of, you know, more activity than it previously had received. And we think that, um, you know, that stands in line with kind of that brick house mentality. Um, so we've been very slow to expand, very slow to add venues or add activities. What, what we do, uh, you know, instead what we're doing is um, brick by brick, you know, sustaining what we do. Awesome. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I think it's really interesting to have a landscape of entrepreneurs out there that, you know, some some people want to create the empire, other people want to create a brick house. And and I see it all the, all, all the time like really intelligent, incredible business leaders in this industry that, you know, Prism works with and they move themselves out of an operation that's growing too quickly. Like, you know what? I kind of just like running that club. I have the capability <laughs> to, like, I can do it in my sleep. I have fun with it. I, I like the artists that come through it. Like, I just want to enjoy my life. And yeah, um, so a certain sect of humans out there, like can find a lot of joy in, in just doing something more lifestyle focused and other people, um, you know, I really enjoy the journeying out and kind of, you know, the building of larger and larger structures, which I frankly enjoy a lot of as well. And there's a whole lot in the middle and yeah, it's interesting to hear where you land 
on that spectrum, I guess a little bit of a segue into the house and I guess like the technology world, like, how, mm-hmm. you know, I know you because I'm the CEO of Prism and um, you're one of our favorite customers. Like how, how has, how has technology helped you build a strong foundation? Um, you know, obviously would love to hear about Prism as being a part yeah. of that, but also other platforms as well. Yeah, I, I mean, we've always been really, I, I think to the extent that a company of our size and scope can be, we've always been really technology focused. So I, I think unlike a lot of um, people in our world, uh, we look at something like the um, the ticketing platform, for instance, as being a, uh, you know, far beyond just this is where you sell your tickets. We look at that as a data platform, as a marketing platform, as something that helps you understand your business with much greater clarity. Um, you know, and that was something that I, I think we were really unusual in terms of the fact that when you looked at our staff, you know, I was really insistent that when we talked about the ticketing, that um, people within the company that wouldn't normally uh, have a huge relationship with the ticketing did because we said, okay, that those things, you know, the reports that we can pull out, the data we can extract, all those things are things to help you in a 360 degree um, sense of your business. When it came to something like Prism, you know, pre-pandemic, we were working in spreadsheets and we were working with, you know, multiple bookers that all had that kind of singular file sitting on their computer and, um, you know, a shared calendar, but that was about as far as it went. And one of the things that we did during the pandemic was once it was really clear that um, shows weren't going to start for a while and, uh, you know, rebooking and rescheduling and all that kind of, you know, madness that took place where you're kicking shows for the fifth or sixth time um, out to some imaginary time period where things would restart. And we said, okay, everybody pump the brakes and we're going to huddle and we're going to talk about what are the problems within our company. And the big thing we identified was, um, you know, this sort of like, what is the central uh, mode of communication? What is the central communication hub? What is the central information storage? And we'd used, you know, different solutions over the years, but it was all kind of spread out and kind of patched together. And we sat down first and said, without even looking at something like Prism and said, well, what, uh, you know, what are the elements of something that can help us with greater levels of communication, greater levels of efficiency and, and that kind of thing. And it, it really came down to, um, look, it's something really simple. We need to all be looking at the same information. It needs to be kind of live. It needs to be some level of a custom view so that the view that my marketing department sees um, versus the view that my catering department sees has to be uh, different. And the way that they're going to use it, some kind of a central platform would be different. And we went to the step of um, exploring designing software and all that sort of thing. And then somebody in our office said, hey, have you guys looked at Prism? And we looked at it and, you know, Matt, I'm going to, I'm going to say, you know, a huge compliment here on one hand. And then, uh, you know, the also their, you know, true realities of it is, is that I looked at it and I said, this is, this is outstanding. Um, you know, we can really literally take this and say, okay, this starts with the dates. It starts with the offer and everything distributes from there. It's this beautiful 
central um, you know, hub of truth, the central hub of all information. It all lives here and everybody's got their own customized way that they see it. And um, so on its face, that's an incredible achievement. And for us, it has been an outstanding, uh, you know, way to make things much more efficient. We went through the, um, you know, step of really doing in-depth trainings and, and that sort of thing. And your team was really great about that. Specifically, Rosie spent many hours with our people. And I think it was really important that everybody was on the same page. How are we going to use this? What's this going to look like? Um, the thing that is unavoidable with a platform like Prism is that it aspires to do so many things and it aspires to address um, so many areas in a really complex business is that when you come across something that it can't do or is not necessarily an intuitive path to how you and your brain think it should be and as a non-computer programmer you go well just change it um, you know, it can get frustrating. It's like, well, okay. Our production manager goes, I've been doing my advance this way for 30 years and this is how it's going to go. And why doesn't it look exactly like my advance? And so there's a learning curve there. And there's also a little bit of expectation setting, um, from the technology that say, okay, let's appreciate, you know, the broad objective of what this is trying to do. And let's really appreciate the fact that in many cases, it's extremely successful at that. Um, but nobody is going to build something right out of the box that's successful at every single thing that it tries to achieve. And if they did, uh, it would be so insanely expensive and overdeveloped that nobody would be able to afford it. And you'd probably need to change it, you know, within two days to catch up to, you know, emerging industry trends, right? And we talk about a lot of these things with you know, the differences in how revenue flows or the differences in how we address expenses, how we drift different kinds of deals. And so that that has been something that, um, you know, I'm very appreciative for a flexible platform and, and how it's all gone. Yeah, uh, thank you. I mean, I think the little bit of constructive feedback you put in there, or, or realism, as you put it, with like the profound compliment, I, I, I see it all as a profound compliment, honestly. You know, software is just an amazing game of of give and take. It, it's you. It's really hard to build software. You're you're building bricks and structures, and it's it's a lot of, you know, like fi finding people that you know can can see that you've done something absolutely perfectly, and then if there's a certain piece of the application that they need they need to kind of bend around, like it it requires it requires that, and some people get that really well, and and other people don't, and then uh, you know, folks that don't, you hope that they can deliver feedback that in a, in a, in a sensible way that, you know, that uh, patient feedback and allow us to adopt. And, and frankly, that's a, a lot of the way that prism has changed over the years. Um, and yeah, I mean, when you walked into prism, we had gone through a few years of doing that with a growing group of promoters. And, and I've always, I've appreciated your organization for delivering a ton of feedback. And I know we've been able to act on a lot of it as well. And, and it's ongoing. And the, the person who walks into prism eight years from now, uh, you know, God willing is going to get a much, 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 much better experience. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to keep that going. And ideally, ideally huh. software systems do continue to grow, to grow and expand. Yeah. And further kind of fit the mold of, of the, yeah. of the, of the challenge. It's like a, a guitar that starts off as a tree 
mostly. Right. And then over time, it becomes more and more of a guitar. That's what we're trying to do. With well, we have a really yeah. squirrely industry too. And people <laughs> do things that a lot. I mean, that was one of the things I was most impressed with when you say, okay, I'm writing offers here. And, you know, I've seen other offer writing platforms and it's like, some of it is like pretty scary and, you know, pretty limited. And, and the fact is, is that I had a, you know, after seeing um, the way that some of the other offer writing software had functioned, seeing one that had some just little intelligent, intuitive things um, that got you from A to B uh, in, in a relatively elegant fashion uh, was a real breath of fresh air. And the fact that, okay, we can tie this into, you know, disseminating all of this information or, you know, using it as a great day-to-day -day tool, um, you know, that I think that for us was, uh, you know, because it, it's one thing to say, okay, we're going to make this financial investment in the software. It's another to say, we're going to trust um, the day-to-day -day of our business in a big way with the software. And so to me, that's the much larger step that, um, you know, from a, you know, kind of intellectual standpoint as a business operator, you have to make that decision. We're moving from these systems that are very imperfect, but everybody has at least functioned with and been comfortable with over the years to something that is, you know, a little new and a little scary and you're kind of in, in some ways handing the keys over. So it, you know, it has to be good. Yeah. So speaking of like adopting to your day-to-day -day process, we recently launched CoPro, which you gave us a, a ton yeah. of great feedback on. And um, obviously there's much more that we want to be able to do with it, but curious to talk through, you know, what that experience was like and seeing it come to life and how, how it's, you know, what kind of problems it's solving for you. Well, it's one it better. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like it's one of the most complex, um, you know, issues you can deal with as far as, uh, you know, starting a show, settling a show, all these different considerations. And, you know, as, as you guys have pointed out, the current platform um, is kind of, an, you know, an mediary step between, I think, what the eventual realization of the whole thing is. But um, I've been very pleased with uh, the ability to look at it and say, okay, this really does address and clean up a lot of the issues um, that dealt with settling a copra in the past or writing a copra in the past, which, you know, with a platform like Prism in the absence of copra, you're ultimately doing two sets of books there that opens you up to all kinds of error and that kind of thing. And that, um, you know, the new copra platform has really uh, reduced the amount of entry, reduced the amount of error and sped the process up uh, quite significantly. And it contemplated a lot of the little things about copra um that it needed to so you know i'm sure that there were a lot of as you guys had a larger growing client list uh you know there was i'm sure a lot of demand for it because it's such a common um you know deal point um but uh, making sure that in the first place it you know the platform that came out was well thought out um was really important and i think you guys have achieved that uh, thank you so much. I, I appreciate it. Um, if there's anything else that you, you know, kind of, if there's any other bird birds, I have you, you know, achievements that Prism has helped you unlock with your business, you know, feel free to share. And I I've also appreciated our conversations, you know, on the ticketing side. And, um, there's a few things that you've mentioned to me technology wise that you're, you think are that I've learned through our conversations that are like really important on the, on the technology side. And, 
uh, platinum ticketing, I think is one thing that's extremely, mm-hmm. you know, valuable to you. Um, so yeah, what's, if you could just end with like an, uh, a, a nutshell of like what you're seeing important, uh, important trends that you're seeing in terms of building that brick house in technology, whether it's something like Prism and, and the features inside of ticketing that are, are innovative, that are on the cutting edge that, and I know, you know, that are, that you need for your business, that would be, you know, really appreciated yeah. to hear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, we're, you know, we're looking at all of these as, you know, A, how do we keep up with the current trends, you know, and if you would have asked somebody 10 years ago, if things like platinum ticketing um, would be nearly as important as, as it is now, I think that would be a real surprise to see the the level of importance it's taken on, you know, within the industry. I think that the big thing that we need to think about all these platforms is um, these are incredible centers of data for the promoter um, and incredible centers of data for the user. Um, so when you look at ticketing and you look at things like Prism and all of this, these things that we've accumulated over the years, um, it, it really does get into, well, okay, how do we organize that data in more intelligent ways? How do we use it to uh, reach the consumer more efficiently? How do we use it to make uh, greater decisions day to day about what we're going to do, whether it is, um, you know, how we're paying an artist, how is the show performing, um, you know, what should we be doing from a macro level with our business? I mean, one of the great things about Prism that I think we haven't really even touched on is the ability to not just you know, exist with it at the show level, but zoom way out and say, how is the business doing at large? Um, you know, you'd never use it to replace accounting software or anything like that. But Prism has uh, some very unique elements to it where we can drill down to certain types of data, whether it's, um, you know, groups of performers or venues or whatever, um, and and learn some things about our business that, uh you know, typically wouldn't have been within the realm of understanding. And, and I think that that's, you know, the long-term conversation for me is how does, how do those kinds of systems that you have at the venue level that you're sitting in front of your kind of command center, how does that tie into things like the ticketing and how does it dispel some of the assumptions that we've made about the consumer, dispel some of the assumptions that we've made about, you know, various points of deal structures and that sort of things. So that to me is, is kind of the you know the holy grail of it how do we get closer and tie all those things in together and have more distilled you know sort of um you know abbreviated versions of understanding the the breadth and depth of our data got it well thank you so much we're just rounding the corner on an hour and a half here which is about all i I uh, asked you for, and you've been very gracious with your time, and I appreciate it a lot. Um, not just in this conversation, but in the you know couple of years that we've known each other. Um, so yeah, I just want to say thank you for having you on. I appreciate your time, and um, yeah, if you have any closing thoughts, you know, please feel free. But no, yeah, man, I always, I always <laughs> enjoy talking to you. You're your fellow yeah. nerd, nerd like me, and, and indeed. So I, you know, I don't, I don't do a ton of, ton of talking, but I always enjoy a good conversation with you. So I, I thank you for that. 
Yeah, our first conversation was about that uh, an Israeli scientist that found like an object yeah, floating yeah, through the universe. Yeah, yeah, and, or whatever. Yeah, yeah the like, Oumuamua, yeah. Space yeah. Junk. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I still, you know, when I'm not building concert software, I'm looking into that kind of stuff. So it was, yeah, that was yeah. that was how we first connected. And you gotta it's, keep it's, your eye on the yeah. sky. That's, what, yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, thanks again, Matt. Appreciate it. All right, take care. Bye-bye.